always green around the other side. Caterpillar to a butterfly. It's green and growing with Ashley Frasca. Plants, flowers, trees, and stuff. Brought to you by Pike Nurseries. On 95.5 WSB. My Outdoor Expert Series continues. Good morning. When I began the show almost three years ago, it was during COVID, and that worked to my advantage because I was able to tap many celebrities to come on the show. So this from two years ago, and an update on what he's doing now coming up at the conclusion of this conversation. But how do you introduce a Rolling Stone with Georgia Roots, this one here, a tree farmer, a conservationist, and a darn good musician, Chuck Lavelle. Hey, Chuck, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you so much. Wonderful to be with you. Well, you and your wife, Rose Lane, owners of the Charlene Plantation down in Twiggs County, Georgia, and doing a little bit of research there, Chuck, in middle Georgia, her family has been in that area for almost three centuries. Is that right? That is correct, yes. Um, some of the land goes back to land grants uh, from the king and has been passed through. And, of course, a lot of that has been broken up through the years. But there is some fractions of that that Roseline still has. And uh, the actual land that she inherited back in 1981 from her grandmother was a tract that uh, her grandmother and grandfather purchased back in the 1930s. We eventually moved out and started to try to carry on this heritage of stewardship of the land. And tell me about the character of the plantation, because it seems that the two of you are just so deeply embedded in it and it in, in the two of you as well. Well, when Rose Lane inherited the initial property, which was about a thousand acres, it was a diversified farm. There there was cattle on the place. There was broke cropping going on uh, and there was some timber as well. You know, we certainly wanted to carry on, as I said, a heritage of stewardship, but row cropping and cattle farming, uh, those kind of things seemed to be way too much day to day for me if I wanted to follow my musical career. And we started looking into all kinds of options. We looked into peach trees, pecan trees, nursery stock, and on and on. But one morning, my brother-in-law, Rose Lane's brother, Alton, said, you know, if you guys are not going to plant this 50-acre field down the way that we normally plant on a crop, you might consider just going ahead and planting uh, trees on it. And boy, a light bulb kind of went off in my (laughs) head. And and the first thing I thought of, uh, Ashley, was the connection of, of music and wood. You know, where does that marvelous thing that's given me a great career and so much joy come from? And, of course, from the resource of wood, as do most musical instruments. Then the other aspect of it was this is long term. It's not so much day to day. It's good for the earth, uh, carbon sequestration, uh, wildlife, et cetera, et cetera. So it really fit uh, a lot of the bills that I was looking to personally try to accomplish. Conservation is so important, but how would you explain that to city folk or someone who's not really aware of what is involved in conservation? Well, it's a great question. And, and let's start with the word sustainability, which is perhaps overused these days. But let's let's examine that word and see what does it really mean in terms of uh, forestry, uh, sustainable forestry. Basically, what it means is you're going to be planting, growing, and managing more trees than you are going to be taking off the landscape. And and if we can pause for just a second and think about, well, what else does that resource give us? Mm-hmm. Well, it gives us materials to make books, magazines, newspapers, packaging products, 
it, it gives us uh, materials to build our homes and schools and churches and offices, and it gives us uh, home and shelter to all manner of wildlife. Uh, we talked a little bit a minute ago about carbon sequestration. It, it cleans our air. It filters our water that goes into our rivers and streams. So it's hard to think of a resource, a natural resource that is more important uh, than trees and forests. So, you know, you want to use these products. You want to have working forests where you can take this wonderful material and make these things out of them. But you also want to make sure, again, that you're doing it in a sustainable fashion so that you're making sure uh, that they will always be there. You know, I, I actually prefer the term perpetuity to sustainability. Mm -hmm. uh, I want our forest to be perpetual. Very good. And you are so well respected in the industry as well. The Georgia Forestry Association nominated you in Rose Lane as Tree Farmers of the Year in 1990. You won for the state of Georgia. And then in 1999, the American Tree Farm System selected you guys as National Outstanding Tree Farmers of the Year. So you've definitely done your part and you continue to do so. How did you decide when your brother-in-law had that idea what trees to grow? Uh, we wanted to do as much indigenous uh, that, as we could. We have to understand that the landscape uh, throughout the southeast has changed dramatically since European settlement. And uh, the original tree, the dominant tree uh, from Virginia down to East Texas was longleaf pine. However, when those forests were cut and the products used and agriculture came into the picture, et cetera, et cetera, uh, it was found in early stages that longleaf was a really fickle tree to reestablish. It has a very long taproot. It has to be planted very carefully. So the loblolly pine became more in favor, and that's the dominant tree that we see, at least in the uh, pine species across the southeast now. Of course, let's don't forget the Appalachian areas where you had uh, the wonderful American chestnut tree that mm -hmm. was lost to the blight. Right. Uh, however, the good news there is the American Chestnut Foundation does a wonderful job in trying to uh, reestablish that tree, and the current uh, methodology is breeding a one sixteenth Chinese chestnut nut to a fifteen sixteenths American chestnut. Wow. And of course the the blight came from China, so that one sixteenth is giving enough resistance, at least in most cases, to uh avoid that blight. And so they're doing a great job. I've engaged in reestablishing that. I think I've got about thirty surviving uh chestnut trees on our place now. But Getting back to the longleaf, uh, I'd say about 20, 25 years ago, there began a effort through the Longleaf Alliance and through other uh, private landowners to say, well, let's see if we can bring the longleaf back. And so a lot, a lot of the nurseries did great work growing what we now call containerized longleaf, and that is instead of having a bare root, there is soil around that root, and so it makes it easier to establish and easier to grow. And uh, we've engaged in that. I think we have about 350 acres of longleaf that we've been planting over the last 15 years or so. Wow. And, you know, we would not be Southerners ourselves if we did not recognize oak trees and magnolia trees and, of course, the southern pines, too. Chuck, give us some of maybe the diseases that, folks, everyone can recognize a pine tree, right? A lot of us are beginning gardeners, just getting acquainted with nature. What are some of the diseases or blights that we would need to be able to recognize that could affect our pine trees here in Georgia? 
Uh, well, that is a great question. In, in terms of insects, uh, there are three that concern us. One is the Ips beetle, and that is spelled I-P-S, Ips. And the second is the uh, black gum turpentine beetle. And the third is the most feared southern pine beetle. Uh, the Ips and the black gum turpentine beetle tend to only affect a tree or a number of trees in a relatively small area sort of uh, incidental um, effects. And this is largely, by the way, caused by drought and climate change. When we have droughts, uh, these insects have an opportunity to proliferate. You know, it's their signal to say, let's go for it. And they start chewing up all these uh, trees. Mm. So the uh, just to uh, reiterate about the southern pine beetle, that guy can devastate uh, a number of acres in a very short period of time. And so the the Georgia Forestry Commission does a great job of flyovers uh, with airplanes and helicopters where they're always looking down to see if they see brown spots. And they can warn a landowner, hey, it looks like you might have an outbreak on your place, and uh, you try to uh, attack it immediately. And really, there's no spray or chemical or anything that can stop these things. But the uh, methodology is if you do get a southern pine beetle outbreak, you try to cut about a hundred foot area around the infected uh, uh, acreage and then try to fell all the trees inward into kind of a circle, if you will, and then try to burn them up and, and try to get rid of them. So these are the things that we look for in pines. Now, as you know, emerald ash borer yes. is a big problem. And boy, oh boy, it's just so sad to see beautiful ash trees go down to that insect. Again, there's no natural enemy that we know of. I know a lot of research stations and universities are trying to see if there might be some uh, predator insect that would help. Unfortunately, at the present, it's just a phase that seems we're just going to have to go through. And how can you really get to know this well-respected musician, keyboardist, who was part of the Allman Brothers Band and who's still with the Rolling Stones? As a matter of fact, they just concluded a successful tour of Europe three months ago. More of my conversation with Chuck Lavelle up soon on Green and Growing. Stay close. The update on the weekend weather brought to you by Finley Roofing. So when Chuck and I spoke two years ago, the Tree Man documentary was just being released, and it's now available as an in-flight selection on Delta flights. There's three themes, if you will, to the film. One, of course, is the musical career. The other is my career in forestry and the environment. And the third, to me, the most important is a love story. Uh, Rose Lane and I have been married 48 years now, so I wanted that uh, story to come through as well. I just feel blessed to have these interests and to be able to do things uh, with those interests. And we're going to rock and roll. Don't worry about that. Well, I can't let you go without asking you a tip for beginning gardeners. And this time of year, I've stressed on the show, plant a tree and shrub. This is such an accommodating time of year here in Georgia to do so. Can you give us one or two basic tips of how to successfully plant a tree Try to stick with something that is indigenous to your area, to your part of Georgia or, or wherever you live. The Georgia Forestry Commission has a, a great nursery, and they have all kinds of trees, not just pines, but they have oaks and dogwoods, ornamentals, and, and all kinds of trees. 
Uh, again, I'd love to mention the American Chestnut Foundation. Mm-hmm. Uh, ACF is the three-letter initials for it. If you're interested in uh, joining that party, it's a great organization. You know, this is the right time of year to start thinking about planting uh, when when the cold weather begins. And you certainly want to try to be done by, say, March or early March if possible. Um, Make sure that tree is in an area where you can get water to it or or the shrub, whatever it is, uh, periodically, especially the first year or two. Uh, to keep it healthy and growing. Uh, mulching is important. Try to mulch around the area to keep uh, other weeds and competition down. And uh, and just look after that puppy and have a good time with it. Great advice. And it's so rewarding for those of us with smaller areas to just have that one tree. And you've really got something to be proud of with the acres there at Charlene Plantation. Okay, a quick rapid fire with you, Chuck. And I know you're itching. It's early on a Saturday morning. You've got a, a long day's work ahead of you. So first of all, your favorite tree? <laughs> <laughs> Longleaf pine. That was the native tree in our area. I think it's a magnificent uh, tree. And I'm sticking with that. And the Charlene Plantation there, there's hunting, there's lodging. You and Rose Lane have animals. Your favorite dog? Oh, we have uh, two German German short hair pointers that are our uh, current pets that we love so much. They're both just lovely and very uh, diverse, uh, capable, smart, uh, good retrievers, uh, good companions. So GSP, uh, German short hair pointers. <laughs> Politician or president or whomever that you've worked closely with that you would say has a really good record for attention to conservation and sustainability since that is so important to us. Absolutely, no question. President Jimmy Carter, great man, great conservationist, incredible intellect, great uh, passion for for conservation, for ecology in general, and just a brilliant man. Lastly, I have to ask you, your favorite song to play? Ah, well, that's like picking a favorite child. I know. (laughs) You know, Jessica was a a nice instrumental hit with the Allman Brothers Band. It it was a great vehicle for a piano player. It gave me a nice spot. I get a lot of comments on the song, and and I'd never get tired of playing it. But uh, the other one that I have to mention, my hero, Ray Charles, uh, nailed and made famous, and that is Georgia On My Mind. What an interesting man. Chuck and I could have spoken all day, but I did get an update before I aired this interview and shared it with you again as to what he's up to now. Chuck said they just finished filming their 11th episode of America's Forests right here in Georgia. You can find out more at americasforestswithchucklavelle.com, and that runs on PBS. They've also done segments on the Altamaha River, the Moody Forest, and at Graphic Packaging. And since the end of their whirlwind European tour, of course, with the Rolling Stones, he has been working on the Charlene Plantation as well as making personal appearances. Coming up next, another conifer lover from whom you'll learn a lot next on Green and Growing. WSB, Atlantis News and Talk. It's Green and Growing with Ashley Frasca. Plants, flowers, trees, and stuff. Brought to you by Pike Nurseries on 95.5 WSB. 
I'm really proud of the show I've put together for you this morning, week two of my Outdoor Expert series. And we've heard from pruning experts and even a world-famous musician. So from one conifer enthusiast to another, my meeting this past summer with Tom Cox, owner of Cox Arboretum in Canton and author of Landscaping with Conifers and Ginkgo for the Southeast. His passion and knowledge for trees was so clear. He's traveled the world actually has trees from all over the world in his 13-acre landscape in Canton. So we started off talking about his knowledge of history, the oldest tree there is, and maybe the toughest one you can find. Ginkgo would have come along about 180 to 200 million years ago. It is treated as the world's oldest tree. At one time, Ginkgo appeared in North America and other parts of the world. And due to the glaciers on the earth, ginkgos became extinct. And they were rediscovered in China. Uh, Whether or not they're extinct in China, we're not really sure. But the Buddhist monks treated them as sacred trees and would plant them around temples and Buddhist uh, monasteries and what have you. So they revered the tree. It's a very tough tree, largely unchanged again from when it was first appeared on earth. We know this from fossil remains, looking at them in North America as well as in China and other parts of the world, even Australia. One tree, which I'm going to show you soon, survived Chernobyl. It was actually three trees survived Hiroshima and came back from the roots. So very, very tough tree, tenacious tree. Uh, They're known for several things. One is their fall color. That is probably one of the top five trees that you could ever find for fall color. And when you said that ginkgos were recognized way back in history because of fossils, that was seen in the leaf, that very unique fan-shaped leaf being fossilized, right? Exactly. You could find that exact leaf, and you could find ginkgos that had become extinct. Again, here in North America, we had some of those out in the, like Montana. And ginkgos are familiar to me because I was a student at the University of Georgia, and they're planted uh, along Broad Street in downtown Athens. But I also recognized the ginkgo leaf as your symbol for the Cox Arboretum. How did you choose that? I just, again, I find the leaf fascinating. I like the tree. As we'll walk around here and see, you're going to see probably 50 different ginkgo here. I stress the word different, very distinct. You'll be able to tell them apart. And each each of them has a name like Majestic Butterfly, which is a little dwarf variegated form. I, uh, I'm fascinated by the history of this tree, by its longevity at being a survivor. Something that would survive Chernobyl or Hiroshima got to be pretty doggone tough tree. Tom, one of my questions for you was how do you secure these trees from all over the world? Here I was thinking a small tree was shipped to you, and oftentimes it is from a seed or from a cutting that is propagated, and you rely on someone in uh, Tennessee to you know, oftentimes start those cuttings for you and be able to propagate them. And once you get them to your house, and they're here in one-gallon pots, if someone were to procure something that size, a small, small tree, talk me through how you keep that alive from that point. We have a lot of plants here that there's nowhere else in the world. Uh, there's plants here that are nowhere else in North America because of our connections. People can say the same thing of our collection that we send overseas. It starts out with Facebook and Messenger and all that. There's a whole wide world group of people, what I call plant enthusiasts and sometimes conifer enthusiasts. And they're always anxious to share things with you and hope sometimes they get something back from you. So a lot of plants go around the world 
from uh, people taking cuttings. It's not atypical at all in the winter that I would come out here with my wife and take 50, 60, 100 cuttings of different things, package them up, mail them to uh, Czech Republic or Germany or Japan, and uh, send these around. And in return, we're getting plants we don't have. These come in, and uh, mostly they're cuttings, depending on what it is. Some of them are grafted. Some of them are rooted. The pines would all be grafted. The spruce and fir would all be grafted plants. Some of our Japanese cedars, etc., would be rooted. As an example, we get plants in from Oregon that we send to them. They may grow it for two or three years for us. Then when it's ready, they'll send it to us. We'll keep it in a pot maybe for a year, let it get acclimated here, and then put it in the ground. We don't put plants out and stress them right away. And you got to keep them watered. you got to keep them fertilized. And in some cases, pruned or staked. There's a, there's a lot to this. When, you, when you're seeing a plant in Pike's Nursery or somewhere, you don't have no idea what went on making that plant be what it is. If someone had a tree that they wanted to start like this, how long would you say before you are letting it get root-bound and you really need to get it in the ground? How quickly? Whether it's a conifer or whether it's an angiosperm and maple or whatever, you want to put them in the ground before hot weather. That doesn't mean that we don't get things in pots and put them in the ground the next day, but they're plants that are generally been grown in a nursery and are okay, but these things that were grown from cuttings or grafted, we'll put these in the ground in the fall when it's cooler. Want to stress also the need to mulch, whether it's a plant that you bought in a nursery or whether something someone gave you, keep that plant mulched, avoiding soil splash on the foliage, keeping the ground cooler, as well as keeping the moisture in. What you do want to avoid is putting the mulch right up against the trunk. So you want to avoid these mulch volcanoes, but uh, it will help a lot. We use a lot of mulch from uh, tree crews. We normally let that cure outside for about three months before we put it out because otherwise it really deprives the soil of oxygen. Other than that, Ashley, uh, it's not any more difficult than that. The big thing you got to figure now is ultimately do they go in sun, shade, in between? Is it afternoon sun they don't want? Is it full sun they want? Do they want it moist? Do they want it dry? Do they want to be mounded up? Another consideration is how big is it going to get? These all have to be good neighbors. You've looked around here and you see all these plants growing together from literally all over the world. Well, they've they've got to coexist. We run here what I call a plant motel (laughs) where plants check in and plants check out. So we literally keep the good plants and those that are not good neighbors or misbehave, they are kicked out. And you mentioned discovering these things about these trees, what they like, what their sun preferences, what their soil preferences. Given that a lot of the things you have on these 13 acres aren't native to the United States, do you know that as you get the plant or it's trial and error and you're discovering what it likes? We could virtually take almost any plant that's here and you could take a picture of the sign and you could Google the plant. And it would give you more information than you could probably retain. I don't know, I shouldn't say that. You strike me as a very smart person, obviously. But <laughs> the Internet today is filled with, with just a ubiquitous amount of information. So we do a lot of research. One of the things we look at is latitudinal adaptation. Because of where we sit, we're about 34 degrees latitude. That lines up pretty well with a lot of China and, and Taiwan. Taiwanese plants do very well here. We're finding a lot of plants from 
northern Vietnam, as well as high elevations northern Mexico, adapt very well here. All of that is pretty much researched before that plant is ever planted. I gotta figure out how big is it gonna get. And another challenge here is you look around, this place is full of plants. There's over 4,000 different plants in here. Finding spots for these now has become challenging. So we've got to kind of be judicious and circumspect about where we put things. There seems to be, in the botanical world, a little bit of a negative connotation sometimes with something that is a Chinese variety or Japanese variety only because it could be invasive. And like one example that I can think of is wisteria, right? Like Chinese wisteria seems to be super invasive, overruns. But then if you get the American variety, sometimes that's a little more, you know, good for pergolas and things. Why, Why would the Asian varieties be a little more invasive? You know, there's going to be invasive plants out there no matter where you plants derived from. Kudzu is another one of those, obviously a real nemesis for us, as is the scourge to me of all which is Chinese privet. I pay people to pull privet up when they're here. I say that facetiously, but if you want a second job, I'm on it. Come pay, come, come pull privet. What I have always found interesting about southern and south central Asia, particularly China, their flora and the floristic similarity between here. Virtually every plant, actually, in this area you're looking at, the oaks, the hickories, the poplar, the sweet gum, sassafras, there is an Asian counterpart, which means at one time there was a land mass. These plants come from a common ancestry. When the continents drifted apart, there went the plants, and the plants morphed into wherever they are. I'll never forget going to the Grand Canyon, looking at the north and south rim and studying the fauna there and looking at rabbits and squirrels. And on one rim, they'd be furrier or their tail would be bushier or their feet would be larger because they had to adapt to the environment they were cast into. It's no different with these plants. When the, when the continents drifted apart, these plants had to adapt to varying conditions. So I would say overall, many of the Asian plants do better here, actually. When you say invasive, you know, those do too well. We don't grow them here. We don't promulgate plants that would be invasive at all. Well, let's take for a moment Asian dogwood. Our native dogwood is, has anthracnose, which is a fungal issue. A lot of them are weak. They don't bloom as well. You put a cornus cusa in here, and they just do great. They adapt so well here. So I would say overall, it's a probably growing-wise a superior plant. A lot of the reasons are like the hemlock. Our hemlock is getting a uh, insect called woolly adelgid, and it's ravishing hemlock up in the Carolinas, northern Georgia. Yet you can bring in an Asian hemlock, and they're totally impervious to it because they developed a resistance who knows how many hundreds of years ago. I've seen aerial photos from North Carolina of the damage that that does to the hemlocks. I mean, it's they can't get ahead of it. It's acres and acres and acres worth of damage. Same with red spruce. Up in the Appalachian, you, you go over into the Smokies. I have seen areas where we've been into whole mountains of red spruce. Picea rubens, gone. It's gone. And that's primarily acid rain and rainfall regimes changing. Um, now, we get this thing sometime, and I'm kind of agnostic to this, but it's got to be a native plant. And I rhetorically ask, well, native to when? Because at one time, like I said, there were a lot of things native here that aren't native here now. So I don't have anything against native plants. Again, you've seen a lot of native plants, like the uh, yellowwood over here. But there's room for both. 
room for both. That's right, yeah. But again, that, this concept of being a four-season gardener, and gosh, there's no reason today with the internet why you can't see a plant and go out and look that plant up and generally go find it somewhere. And if you can't, come somewhere like this and get a cutting. Coming up next, advice from Tom, what to do when you have insect infestations in some of your trees. On Green and Growing, it's WSB. And I'm back with Tom Cox, owner of Cox Arboretum. Maybe you don't have hemlocks. Maybe you don't have to worry about that woolly adelgid. But Tom warns of two insects that may be a little more common. Pine tip sawflies. They're absolutely murder on two and three needle pines. So if you're not looking in the fall, I mean the fall, I mean about August, on in through uh, winter for these little critters that get on there. Their larvae will just chew the tips of the uh, needles off, thereby killing the plant eventually. We don't use chemicals here typically. I'm kind of purist about that. But with these little critters, we use seven dust on there. I say that with gritted teeth because I don't like using chemicals because of the butterflies and other beneficial insects. But that's one situation, you know, you got to make some decisions out there where you're gardening. How do I know when my conifer, my evergreen tree is toast? I mean, some needle drop is normal. Some browning of the needles is normal. But at what point do I cut my losses? You may not, as a homeowner, recognize that. Obviously, when the plant is starting to die all over the plant, it's not just the tips. You can reasonably assume that that uh, plant has gone south. Many of your non-conifers, you can cut that plant back. There's a word called coppicing, which is taking the plant back almost to the ground level, and they'll come back. You can even do that sometime if your plant has ambrosia beetles. You can cut below where the infestation was, and that plant will regenerate. Conifers are very non-forgiving when it comes to going south. When they do, they they're, it's over. You know, ambrosia beetles, for example, and you say go below where the damage has occurred to make the cut. You're talking trunk and all. Oh, yeah, the trunk is the main thing. They will only generally come to trees that are stressed. It's like that plant is sending out a pheromone that those uh, ambrosia beetles will lock in on, just like radar. You can tell those by that little white frass, little toothpicks that uh, come out. You cut below that, burn that branch or burn that whole tree, and then hope your fingers crossed that it comes back. It's amazing just how far you can go with a tree to save it from damage by the ambrosia beetle. So my thanks to Tom. I've spent a lot of time with him this year and look forward to doing more with him in 2023. Well, coming up, it's that time. Georgia football pregame begins soon right here at the top of the hour. The noon kickoff against the Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets. Enjoy your holiday weekend and go dogs.